In today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. Muslimat al-Nisa was never intended to be a shelter, was always intended to be a home for our homeless. And to return to the prophetic paradigm of how we care for the poor and the needy. And there's no, there should be no embarrassment or no looking down at individuals because, you know, because they were homeless. Allah's messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came to be a mercy to mankind, not for us to add to his burdens. And we as a Muslim community have a responsibility to care for these individuals. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman War Podcast. Salim here and uh, joining me today is uh, my co-host Sara. Assalamu alaikum. Salam. We're very pleased to have with us Chaplain Asma Hanif who is, uh, has a background as a health professional, as a registered nurse, as a nurse practitioner, and also uh, serves in pastoral care as a chaplain. Uh, she is the executive director of Muslimat Nisa, which she founded in uh, 1987. Uh, it's a nonprofit um, centered in Baltimore, Maryland, that provides health, education, and social services to women and children and a shelter for victims of uh, domestic violence. I want to welcome uh, Sister Asma to the show. Assalamualaikum. So, uh, Sister Asma, you know, we definitely want to get into uh, your current work, uh, but I think for a lot of our listeners, uh, they'd like to know a little bit about, more about what your background and, and what led you to where you are today. So, I understand that um, that you're actually not from the Maryland area, you're actually from, you, you grew up in, in the South back in the days of segregation. So, maybe you could sort of give us a little run through about, you know, some experiences then that led you to where you are today working for Muslim Nisa. You know, whenever people ask me, um, how did I start this? It was prior to, of course, my acceptance of, of Islam. And it, a lot of it does have to do with having grown up in the South. And basically, my, um, my mother's people were from North Carolina. And, um, most of my upbringing was with my, my grandmother. And, um, the people down South, for the most part, as African Americans worked in either working as, you know, I call them maid slaves because they say they were maids, but they really didn't have any true position or any status. And, or they worked in, you know, picking tobacco, you know, or picking cotton. And, uh, and I talk about my grandmother in a sense, I said that she worked so hard. I actually, for all of those years, I never saw my grandmother sleeping. When I would get up, she was already, you know, she was already up and, you know, taking care of the things that, you know, our house needed. And then from there, she would go to, you know, the house where she was basically, like I said, you know, a servant. And her employer was a physician. And um, one day she came to him and she said uh, she felt this, this like knot in, in, in her stomach. And it was just the size of a pea, you know, like a little green pea, it was very tiny. And he said to her, he says, don't worry about it. It'll never amount to anything. Well, five years later, that pea size knot was the cancer that killed her. And I remember being in the ninth grade and that story, remember, I love my grandmother. I you know, more than anyone else that I could think of on earth. And it was so sad. And what hurt my feelings was that my grandmother was someone who didn't matter. She was, you know, dispensable. She was part of the discards of society. She had no health insurance. She had no status. She was just, you know, a poor black woman that was, you know, taking care of 
someone else's home. And I said that I wanted to be able to establish, you know, some type of a program or service that would take care of individuals who were just like my grandmother. That the society, like I said, was their discards. They didn't care about them. And um, so they were treated with all matters of, you know, discrimination or prejudices. Then um, the other part of this story has to do with my mother. My mother, um, when I was a child growing up, she said to me, uh, she says, well, when you grow up, go to school. She said, go to school to be a nurse. She said, because when, she said, if you go to school to be a nurse, she says, when people are hurting, they don't care what color you are. They just want someone to be able to help relieve the pain. And that's how I ended up going to school to be a nurse. And I went to Howard University. That's where I actually graduated from originally. And then the, um, when I accepted, I accepted Islam while I was at Howard University. And I then decided that, okay, I saw how Muslim women were treated. See, because now I got a whole nother aspect, you know, of my life. So I saw how Muslim women were treated when they would come into the uh, the hospital. And it wasn't because they were, you know, wasn't in this era of people being, you know, well, I don't say, you know, Islamophobic or disliking Muslims. It was just the rules that if you came into a hospital and you didn't have health insurance, then you when you went to a teaching hospital, they did whatever it was, you know, that they wanted to do and you had no real rights. And when Muslim women would come in and labor and then they would um, take them back to the delivery room, the first thing that they would say is that you had to take off your hijab. And I didn't understand, I didn't understand that because, you know, to best be practical, they weren't even at that part of the body. You know, if you're giving birth, you know, and then they would have you take off the hijab, but then they may put you on one of those little scrub caps, you know, so, it, and, and as well as, that because it was a teaching hospital, then anybody would, could come in and examine you. So it was, you know, for some women, it may have been, you know, like they didn't like it, it was an inconvenience, but for a Muslim woman, it was just, you know, like almost like felt like a violation, you know, of your body. And then the other part of that was when they didn't, they wouldn't let their husbands come into the delivery room. And so I petitioned the hospital, I was always doing something right. I petitioned the hospital for me to be able to accompany the Muslim women when they would go in and labor. And the husbands wanted to come in so that they could call the adhan in the baby's ears. And so by me petitioning the hospital, and I used the religious reason, you know, for why I wanted to do that, um, to accompany the Muslim women, and I did that for them. And um, the other part of it was the Muslim women, um, they didn't want the silver nitrate put in the baby's eyes. And again, years ago, that that was the rule that all babies had to have silver nitrate put in the eyes. And the reason for that was because there was a case of a baby whose mother had was positive for gonorrhea. And the baby was then, you know, when coming through the birth canal, then the baby was, was born blind because of that. So they made a law, a ruling that said that every mother had to have, you know, um, I mean, every baby had to have the silver nitrate. And of course, you know, Muslim women were offended by that, <laughs> were offended by that. Um, and 
because they didn't, you know, they said, well, you know what, we don't have this issue, you know, at all. And that was a problem. And then the last portion, you know, of this, which we'll actually get to the answering the question, is that um, I would have the women who would come from other countries. And when they would um, come there, in the coming from other countries, that the, the mother keeps it, the child always maintains the name of their father. So if the women would come into the hospital and they have their father's last name and not their husband's last name, then the baby could not could only have the last name of the mother, even if they were married or if or if they were married Islamically, but you know not on paper. So none of these women, none of these babies, could have their father's last name. So I petitioned <laughs> again, and I, I I told the fathers that what you have to do is you have to fill out the paternity paper. See, no one ever told them that. If you fill out the paternity paper, it says, I'm accepting paternity for this, for this child, then you could give them the last name. And it would be numerous issues like that. So something that I learned is that I already had this idea that I wanted to be able to take care of those who were in need, that, you know, the discards, those who have, like I said, special needs. But then I also realized that the only way that you could control your environment was you had to establish your own. Because you cannot come to someone else's place and say, I want this. Even the doctors who would tell the women, oh, okay, no, you're not gonna have silver nitrate put in your baby's eyes. But they, a doctor cannot write an order against hospital policy. He could not tell the husbands, I mean, he could you know, tell the wife that, okay, yes, your husband could come in, but not if it was against hospital policy. So the only thing that you could do was establish your own. So I said that I would establish Muslim at Al-Nisa, which started out as a, as a um, healthy solutions, you know, um, center in order to be able to take care of individuals like my grandmother who was in that position um, to take, and to be able to also um, respond to the needs that were particular to Muslim women. One of the interesting things um, in your story was that like we were talking before, you were not from Baltimore, but you actually were, um, you had taken a stop in Baltimore and you were planning to go to New York City, correct? And uh, I think you were going to take a job there, a clinic job there, but it sort of, there were some, some, uh, some impediments there. So you ended up in Baltimore and um, you actually, you, you actually, you went to an abandoned building, right? And you actually found that place to live for yourself and just to make something of yourself. I'd be really interested to hear more about that. And that's how eventually what, you know, eventually led you to staying here and, and doing, uh, yeah. founding Muslim Yes. Yeah, so something that when I, when I speak about, um, well, this is a little background of Muslim at Al-Nisa and the age of it. 1987 was the second time I got incorporated, but it actually started in 1973. Oh, wow. All right. Okay. But it, but it was in, um, in 1987 is when we incorporated and got the 501c3 and did all those things because that's what people wanted if they said they were going to wanted to give donations. Well, what happened, what, what had happened was <laughs> that I had moved from Washington, D.C., and I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and my brother came there to, to live with me. Um, my brother was in New Jersey, and it was discovered that my brother was HIV positive. And every, that was a time when Everyone was afraid of anybody who, you know, you know, was HIV positive. And they were going to put my brother in a, um, you know, in, in some kind of facility that where nobody wanted to care for you. And, and it, when I grew up, it was just myself and my brother. And secondly, to my grandmother, he was like, you know, my, my heart it was my older brother. And I told the people, I said, you know what? No, 
send my brother to me. I'm not afraid of him. And he came to, you know, to live with us in Atlanta. That's where I was living at the time, in Atlanta, Georgia. And he stayed there for two years. And it was very difficult because one of the things about someone who's HIV positive is that, you know, it's the opportunistic infections is what always, you know, have you in the emergency room. And so every, it's like at least once a month, we were in the emergency room, you know, trying to be able to, you know, get him stabilized again. And in the second year, when he went into the hospital, he said to me, he said, sis, he said, I hurt every day of my life. He said, please let me go. And that was when I realized that my brother was just holding on because he, it was for me. And on this particular occasion and the next time when it happened, we did the do not resuscitate. And my, and Allah took his soul. What happened then was that it was a very, you know, it was a, you know, a major loss for me. It was a major loss. And um, I didn't want to, you know, every place reminded me of my brother. So I didn't want to be in Atlanta anymore. So I let go of all of my material possessions, everything that I had. And I said that I wanted to spend more time, especially with my daughter, because she was the youngest. So I sought um, a place where I could work, where... Um, where she and I could be together. And that was in a school, a Muslim school in New York. And I, um, so I, like I said, I let everything go. And we were traveling to New York. It was, uh, I was gonna stay with another Muslim sister. She told me that I could stay there until, you know, I got my first check and, you know, and be able to pay my own rent and my own bills. And I says, okay, great for me and my daughter. And but what I wanted to do was I wanted to stop in Baltimore because I didn't really know anybody in New York. I wanted to stop except for her. And uh, and just so you know, she was someone that I had actually went to school with at Howard University. That's where I knew her from. And um, so I wanted to stop in Baltimore because it was Eid, because it was Eid. And um, yeah, because it was Eid, and I wanted to spend Eid with people who I had known, because of course I had lived in, you know, Washington D.C., so I knew some of the people that was there. And then the next day, I called her up and I said, "All right, well, we'll be here today," because you know New York was just a few hours away from Washington. I mean, from Baltimore. And she said, um, "Well, there's been a change of plans." And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, my husband and I got back together, so now you can't come. And then I tell people that at that particular point, I couldn't go back, but I had nothing to go back to. And, and so I had nothing to go forward. So what did that make me immediately? Homeless. And that's one of the things that I try to share with individuals that um, the biggest mistakes that we make is assuming that homelessness will never happen, you know, to us. And I had never experienced that before. So here I have, you know, all my, you know, whatever my little worldly possessions on this U-Haul truck. I didn't know, you know, what to do. I had, didn't really have any great savings. Um, and cause I had given everything away, you know, for the most part. And two things that I, 
that I remember is that um, when I told the, the a Muslim brother uh, about what had happened, I didn't. I had no solution, and he came back to me, and what he had done is that at the uh, at the masjid. He told the people that there was a Muslim sister, you know, with children that had become recently homeless and she needed money. And again, for the first time in my life, I was someone who was the recipient of zakat as opposed to being an individual who had always given zakat. And he brought the money, you know, he brought me the money. And he said to me, he said, okay, so we have enough money that you can use to be able to rent a place for a month. And then I thought about it. And I said, I thought about the, you know, the parable about the fishing rod. I said that I would rather take the money and use it to purchase my license to practice as a nurse in the state of Maryland, right, which would then be able to, you know, put me on a path of self-sufficiency than to live in a place for a month and then the next month, I mean, I wouldn't, I, you know, I still wouldn't have anything because you can't, you can't practice as a nurse unless you have the license. And that's what I used the money for that. And building next door to the masjid that was actually abandoned. And that's where um, we unloaded, you know, all of my belongings. And technically it was a, for lack of a better word, a crack house. <laughs> and that's where we stayed. We stayed in, 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 this, in that place um, rather than use the money for something. They said that would only have been a temporary measure. And I know that this was, um, was during the time of 9-11. I remember it. Um, and the, the thing about Allah's mercy is that the building, um, for whatever reason, the electricity was on. <laughs> You know, so whoever had maybe had never cut it off. And even at night, you know, people were, were running because it wasn't the best of neighborhoods. I could hear them on the roof running across the roof. They were, you know, maybe running, trying to escape policemen. And one of the things that I did was that I had running water. I did clean the, I cleaned the place with bleach, you know, so that we could, you know, use the bathroom and the tub. And, and the, the mercy was that even though it was like myself and my daughter, Nobody bothered us, and that's what I mean. You know, I, I feel like how our beloved prophet was hiding in the cave with the spider webs or whatever. That's how I felt in, 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 in that abandoned building that Allah had, you know, bestowed some type of pr protection where nobody, you know, came and bothered us. Because it would have been easy. You could just, you know, there was no locks on the door. You know, they could just come in the building and, you know, take whatever. No one ever bothered us. And... Why I mentioned the 9-11 is because, like I said, there was a lot of the crackheads. They would come inside. I don't know if that's, a, if that's politically incorrect to say crackheads, but they would come inside to be warm. They would be warm. They wouldn't come up to where I was. It was because I was, like, on the third floor, and they would be on the, the – the only, I said, the only thing they did that was annoying is that if I had to come downstairs or whatever, then I had to step over. <laughs> I had to step over them to get out. But what was so beautiful, and that's what I mean about, about Allah, is that, when 9-11 occurred and they were targeting, people were targeting Muslims, it was the, those people that someone would call vagrants and no counts. They came up to me and they said, are you okay? You let us know if anybody bothers you. Say, because, you know, we're here for you. We got your back. And these are, again, 
discards a society that no one cared anything about, whereas some Muslims were running and hiding, these individuals told me that they would afford me protection. And um, yes, that, that was a, a major experience. And I, I did, you know, end up getting a job and um, being able to, you know, move forward with, you know, continuing with Muslimat al-Nisa, but that's how it came about. And it, it, it definitely humbles you because um, I find that people may help you for a brief period of time, but when you're in some place needing help for months, you know what, people forget about you. Um, how long were you there? The Strasma. It was about it was about a year because the one thing that I did have to do was like I said you get your license and I actually worked for um, as a as, you know a nursing agency. Yes, I worked for a nursing agency in, in order to be able to save up the money to be able to to move out. And so from there on, you you get on on your feet so to speak, yeah, and then you eventually um, opened the the Muslim in Baltimore. Correct? Is that yes? How, what, so. One of the things that I that I uh, that I thought about in terms of Muslimat um, Nisa is that um, I also discovered um, that there were a lot of individuals, and that's what I talk about, who were in need. And I there was a, a property that we got um, on on the one on Liberty Heights that I. Um, was wanting to be able to do what I had already said I wanted to do was to have, which was to have a health center, so I could actually live upstairs. And then, so I made it almost as if, like they said, a um, home-based business. But I would, I could live upstairs, but then have the clinic, you know, you know, downstairs. And one of the things that I also remember is that when I was able to get on my feet, I thought about the again, I could either use the money and just save myself or I can go forward with my plan and try to save others. Because, you know, what's the point of having something that's of this life if you're not trying to be able to, you know, you know, store up some blessings for the next life? And when I was at that point, you know, I decided that yeah, yes, that's what I wanted to do. And that was when I was telling you about that I wanted to get incorporated in Maryland. And, you know, my son, you know, IU, what he decided that he would do. I said, you know what, I want to be able to do this. And he said, okay, you know, I would help you. And I do wanted to mention that if for no other reason, because people give a lot of credit to myself for the work. And when they asked me about, you know, like if I did this and I did that, you know, and have all this notoriety, and when they ask me about staff, and I always say, I says, no, I had to give birth to my staff because I want them to know that these are the people that were integral in um, me being able to do, you know, you know what, you know what I do now. I mean, I couldn't do it with, without, you know, without my children, and they have sacrificed, you know, just as much, if not more, than than myself and um, they are the legacy that I thank Allah for to be able to leave behind you know in this work. You said you had the health center the clinic um, when did you transition from or not transition I guess would be the right word but um, 
the idea for the shelter? When did that come about and how? Okay. So you're right. Um, so I had the health center and, um, and that was what ended up happening is that people realized that I was, you know, well, as a Muslim. So a lot of Muslim women would come to me for health services because if nothing else, I would respect, you know, respect their, you know, wants or needs or, you know, or don't want. Right. And, um, the other problem that was associated with that is that the Muslim men, the husbands, they would bring their wives to me as well because they knew I was just a, you know, an independent entity. And what ended up happening is that the, the men would bring their wives for female issues because, you know, men don't like to deal with female issues. And I would take, the, whether it was for a pap smear or a breast exam or prenatal care, those types of things. And then I would take the women with me, um, you know, into the back for the exam room. So the men would actually, you know, and I say men because it was numerous times, would say they want to come in, you know, in the back with their wife while she was being examined. And see, the law is, is that if the woman doesn't say no, then they can come back. I mean, I thought it was strange, especially since it was for a female exam, but, you know, she didn't say anything. So then I, I guess maybe a little sarcastic, maybe, I don't know, but I figured, okay, if a man wants to come by, I mean, come back, then, I mean, what is it he wants to see? So, but then if I tell to the woman, you know, okay, I want you to, you know, to get, you know, uh, you know, totally undressed, put on this gown, open to the back, you know, put your feet up in stirrups, you know, and then I have everything all, you know, all laid out. And then you see the speculum, and then, and, and then all of a sudden now, you know, because men, they do get squeamish. And he was like, um, never mind, I think I'll just go back up to the front. And I said to myself, I'm, I'm, you know, I thought so. So what happens is that he's gone to the front, we're in the back, we're going to do the exam. And now, for the first time in her adult life, this woman is alone with someone she can trust. And they trusted me. This is how I discovered there was a large number of Muslim women who were victims of domestic violence. And um, she would tell me, but I had no solution, they would say. So the only th what I started to do is that when she would tell me, then I know that he would bring her back. So that would at least give her a moment of peace. So I would make up diseases. I would say, well, yes, you know, you have to bring your wife back because she has, you know, monodiglycerized vaginosis of the, you know, <laughs> I would just make up on something. And he was like, okay. And then he would bring her back. And then I would say, okay, well, now, we, you know, we have to give her some medication, you know, and then see if it worked. And then, okay. And, and I kept doing that. But then I realized I was just putting a Band-Aid, you know, on a major problem. And it was more women than you would imagine because I was the main place. I don't know if they had some, you know, wife beaters club that they would just, you know, oh, take, take your wife to Sister Asma because, you know, she won't tell. And then I realized that I had to do something more than put the Band-Aid. And that was to establish a shelter for Muslim women victims of domestic violence. And that's why that came about. And something that I also like to share when, um, in terms of this shelter, if you think about it, if I say that, that that I started the idea in like 1973, 75, that was when I was doing it. And then, you know, doing the actual incorporation, you know, let's say in, for Maryland in 1987. But it wasn't until 2005 
that I actually started asking the Muslim community for financial support. And um, my family and I, and I'm not trying to be able to, you know, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but we were the ones that were totally being responsible for the, for the support and maintenance of these Muslim women because, um, you know, we use up all the money we have, like the clinic, you know, and everything, everything. It took all of the money that we had. And because I got it started to be known nationwide with people traveling, I could not, um, I, I could not afford to continually to care for them in the facility that I had. So then I got, you know, another, another location that was away from the office. So if I was going to make them safe, I didn't want to put out that particular address. And the, um, and then what made it, I won't say worse, what made it more difficult is that caring for victims of domestic violence became, you know, well, a prior, more of a priority. It kind of overrided my ability to be able to work as a nurse practitioner, which is where the income came from. So if you think about it, if I had uh, the, the choice that, okay, I have a pap smear scheduled, or if I got somebody in a life and death situation, then the life and death situation is going to take precedence. And so then I became, I became actually unreliable for the people who were coming just for health services. So that's why then I said, all right, you know, I'm going to have to go to the Muslim community and ask for financial support. The problem is that if you say that you have a shelter for, or wanted the money or whatever for Muslim women victims of domestic violence, if a Muslim woman can only marry a Muslim man, right, then it's a Muslim man that's beating her. And if the Muslim men are the ones with the money, they're not going to support a shelter, which is a, you know, a testament to the fact that Yes, we're beating, you know, our wives. So that's the reason why it it was then and continues to be a struggle to be able to get help and support from the Muslim community, which is why after over almost 40 years of work, we're still struggling, don't have staff like that, you know, of living in a shelter and not having any income. And I mean, all of these, you know, nothing that could support myself and my children struggling is because um, it's almost as if Muslim and Al-Nisa hides the shame of the Muslim community and they kept denying the Muslim community you know even today they deny it and what the, what they will do is they will give money to organizations that talk against it the prevention because so you don't have to be you know have assuming any responsibility but not to an organization that actually says, I have some Muslim women victims of domestic violence. So that means that this is like an, an absolute fact. And, if, and, 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 and going along with that, the Muslim community didn't actually, you know, finally break down and admit until, you know, the, you know, that um, Muslim male was, you know, beheaded, the, the owner of Bridges, till he beheaded his wife and it became a public thing. Then they say, okay, well, maybe there's one bad apple. No, I, there's, there's never a time when I don't have Muslim women victims of domestic violence. And most of them come from other countries. 
the majority of the women in the shelter come from other countries. You actually even have, uh, as I understand, like women calling you from other countries themselves, right? It's not just people who are from other countries living in America. You've gotten right. actual calls from people from, from other countries. And, and that is correct. Um, either people... And, and again, that's amazing to me. They're the hardest to help because I can't get them in this country now with your new administration. <laughs> but before, it's like if I could get a plane ticket for them, then you know, then they could they could be become. But yes, um, and they call me if they're victims of domestic violence. And the and the most recent one was someone was calling on behalf of a 15 year old who was um, a forced marriage. And, and and when they do the forced marriages, it's always with old men. And I say old if, if someone's 15 and now the man is 50, all right? That's, and so they don't really want these young girls. They just want to, again, for lack of a better word, deflower them, you know, and then, you know, because they have no interest. They, they have nothing in common. And they're mistreating these young girls. And so, you know, at 15, just as a teenager, and they told someone and they have no means to communicate and and that individual is the one who's calling me or emailing me on behalf of the those who are out the country or those who um the women who are and, and remember most of the older women are educated but they um all of their papers or their documents or whatever are being kept so there's nothing that they can do that's why it's hard to get them here but they will call me and say you know please help me the answer to the question is yes, but they are the hardest to get. And the only way that um, well, we're able to get individuals from who are coming directly from another country is uh, if I get a human rights you know, organization involved, I do that, as well as um, I have traveled to you know, other countries. So I, like even one of my pictures, you'll see I'm with a Syrian, you know, woman, you know, on the street. But um, Turkey has a lot of, you know, I went to Turkey. Someone paid for me to go there. And, um, and I tried I tried to be able to go to, um, uh, was Gambia, you know, just different places. Um, but again, that's, you know, that's money. It costs a lot of money. And I had to get someone to... Um, give me that as a donation or who sees that as a, yeah, that, you know, that as a worthy cause. So, um, and, and I've always been, you know, sponsored. And I tell people, just so you know, if you ever see me at any event, know that because someone found me worthy to pay for it. If you see me on a trip or like I said, at an event, then that I'm not using donation money that's supposed to go for the house for me just to travel around, even though I'm also doing it for the purpose of, of helping individuals. So I'll establish some um, um, like relationships in other countries to be able to help me get individuals, you know, here. Just to get a scope of the problem, uh, uh, or not the problem, but in terms of how many how many people are coming through your doors, like on a yearly basis. I mean, uh, I think it it would probably give a, a good. Um, you know, example of how prevalent a problem this is. Um, I mean, we're not talking about tens of people. We're talking about like hundreds, right? Yeah. And one of the things, in fact, um, my son, Ayub, he helped me with numbers. Basically, when they talk about shelters, they it has less to do with the numbers of people and more about the bed nights. So let's say that in a year's time, it would be almost 4,000 bed nights. That means that, you know, first of all, there's never a time when there's no one there. 
It's never a time. And this is the time of year when the majority of people, you know, are seeking shelter. And one of my standard responses when people ask me, well, how many people, in, when someone may ask me, how many people in the shelter? I actually don't like that question. And then, for, first of all, I tell people a shelter is like a hospital. You can't build it when someone needs it. So when people, on many occasions, I won't say everyone, when they're asking that question, is they wanting to, wanting to be able to, you know, you know, refute that there's a need for a shelter for Muslim women. I say, oh, well, if you only have five people in there or you only have, you know, you know, one people, I mean, one person, you only have, you know, 25 people. You see that that's the point. And then I also what I will come back with the answer when they say how many people are there. And I says, well, how much money do you have? Because it's it's totally not about how many people it's about how many people I can afford to have. So if I'm in if I have a house right now and it's a multifamily dwelling and if I can hold 50 people you know, 50 women and children, but if I can only afford 10, you see, then you're asking the wrong question because I, what I, when I was trying to design it, I thought about, I says, okay, so where have I been that you maximize the number of people in a minimal amount of space? A college dorm. And that's exactly, and you know, no one, no one cared, you know, about that. And so you put bunk beds. And if you have four walls, you know, and two in a bunk bed on each wall, so that's two, four, six, eight, you see, in one bedroom. And no one is it's no one is crowded. Because remember the point is to have a home environment. So bedrooms are just to sleep. Meanwhile, you have a living room, dining room, a kitchen, a musella, a little library, you know, you have all of, you know, all of those the spaces because the, you know, you can't make, you don't make the bedroom into like your little mini apartment because no, you're living in cooperation, you know, and in, in, in harmony with other Muslim women. And I tell anyone who comes, he says, well, I want a room to myself. I said, well, you know, if the person that's in this room said that, then I'd have to leave you outside on the street now, wouldn't I? See, and we have to be, we have to be mindful. And, and I, I say this, that something that I wanted Muslim at Al-Nisa was never intended to be a shelter, was always intended to be a home for our homeless. And to, I used to say to establish a different paradigm for how we care for the poor and the needy or the homeless, but, but, but no, it's to, return to the prophetic paradigm of how we care for the poor and the needy. And there's no, there should be no embarrassment or no looking down at individuals because, you know, because they were homeless. Um, as I said, it's an easy thing, you know, to happen. And I find that the Muslim community, we failed at that. We have adopted the, the American standard for caring for the poor and the needy. But if we are to research through, you know, our own, the Quran and the Sunnah of our beloved prophet, we would absolutely treat people differently. So that's the reason why I said it's a, it's a home. Now, the one, one point I do want to make relative to this is that if I was to say to why even I use the term shelter, if I was to say to uh, the Muslim community, and I found this out through experience, um, I have a house 
you know, for Muslim women who have no place, you know, no, no place to go. Or if I say, I have a shelter for homeless Muslim women, which one are they going to give money to? And the only difference between the first one and the second one is the first one allows them to keep their dignity. But it's no different. You already mentioned some of the barriers you think um, that are facing the Muslim community and how they approach the issue of domestic violence, especially also with your project in, in, in giving homes to victims of domestic violence. Uh, one of them being that there's a there's a, a sort of a lack of accountability or uh, or an unwillingness to to admit that Muslims are committing these you know heinous acts of, of domestic violence. Um, I was wondering also, do you think also, especially um, in our current time, um, when asking for support or asking for help, that Muslims also, because we're faced with a lot of stereotypes right now, especially Muslim men as being these misogynistic terrible towards women, uh, beating women, and because there's a stereotype that's just prevalent, uh, that people actually may recoil further away from that stereotype, so they don't want to admit or, 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 or support things that are, that are geared towards treating the victims of domestic violence because we're just trying to distance ourselves away from just being that stereotype, which is just being you know, pushed and pushed. Do you, do you find that as well? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because I have a, an answer. <laughs> that I have actually um, um, came to the realization. First of all, just to give it a little background, is that Muslimat al-Nisa is the only shelter in the United States accepting sisters nationwide with no government funding that's exclusively for Muslim women, right? And one of the, 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 the uh, criticisms that I receive from the Muslim community is that, you know, well, why are you doing that? You, you know, you should be able to be welcoming to all. And I tried to share with them. I said, but Muslim women have special needs. And you can only have, you know, one rule that, I mean, you know, one set of rules in the house. I can't say, okay, it's okay for, you know, for these people over here to smoke and drink and curse and hang out or whatever. Whereas a Muslim woman, you know, no, you got to do this and you have to do that because it's according to, you know, Quran and Sunnah. Plus it has to be a safe haven for, you know, for Muslim women. But... A greater, a greater um, reason is I refer back to the, the 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 group that was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, when they were wanting to build um, a a masjid there, and the people of the community, you know, said, "No, we don't want it. We don't want it." And I actually listened to the um, you know the the trial. And the, the, the lawyer who was, you know, on the side of, of course, the people of Murfreesboro, what he did was he brought forth documentation which talked about how Muslim men, you know, um, would beat their women, you know, you know, like, you know, what, the, the women who were homeless, the abandonment, you know, all of these things. And he ended his, his, um, you know, comment, you know, I guess his closing remarks was, he said that if they treat their women this way, how do you think they would treat us? Because he was able to bring forth all of this documentation. Now, where did he get that documentation from? He didn't go and, you know, from, you know, some Muslims and they told him. It was because we had sent, we sent our Muslim women into their institutions. So if we put, if we send a Muslim woman, you know, to be sheltered 
by, you know, the, the shelters that are ran by people who are not Muslim, right, then that can become public knowledge or maybe they could get access to it for whatever reason. Or if, if they're being, you know, treated, you know, like say in the hospitals, you know, that are, that are um, you know, the people are not liking Muslims. But the main way that he had all these statistical data was from them being in shelters ran by others for, Muslim, for victims of domestic violence. So, in my opinion, what I was wanting to do was not have that information out there. See, no one could get that from me. So, okay, as, Muslim, as a Muslim community, we're not going to penalize the woman by saying that she's not a victim, but at the same time, I mean, and, and, provide, and, you know, and, and then not providing her care, but at the same time, not putting information forth for someone to use against our Muslim men. So Muslim Al-Nisa, if they looked at it correctly, is actually a protection for our Muslim brothers. Because, you know, I mean, I have three sons, you know, and, and a son-in-law, you know, and, and, and I know that this is not the majority of Muslim men. It's a small number. And even when a Muslim woman comes and she's a victim of domestic violence or even being abandoned as, you know, you know, and, and homelessness. I never accuse a Muslim brother of being, of being an abuser. That's between them and Allah. I can't do that. Muslim man al-Nisa was established that if a Muslim sister comes, said that she's in need of shelter, I mean, she could come with, you know, with, with a, you know, a bloody head, eye hanging out, bruises or whatever, but she didn't come to me, you know, to make a, you know, um, you know, a, a character judgment, you know, on whoever did that. She came because she was in need of shelter. And that's what I do. I don't accuse anybody of anything. And and, and if the, the woman, even if she wants to speak about it, I said, sister, that's not my area. You need to talk to an imam. Because, you know, you know, as, as women, we have, you know, we know what, you know, our, you know, what we can and cannot do. And I cannot, and I can't mediate, you know, or arbitrate between the two of them. So I have never, I have never accused the brothers. And I provide a safe haven for the Muslim women who come. And I also, and I don't want to say, you know, you know, you know, have the, you know, cover their shame, but it's not necessary to be able to allow the few, you know, who come. And I say a few based on, you know, all of the other men who don't do this, they should not have to be penalized because of, you know, the, the bad behaviors of others, then um, I don't want it to be that this is how Muslim men are, but at the same time taking care of the Muslim women who come. So if they, they should, fortunately they should support it because I don't tell because it's not necessary, right? It's not going to make a difference. And the other thing too, that's also why I don't accept government money. And that's another complaint that the Muslim says, well, why don't you get government money? We pay taxes. Because if you do that, then, you know, all government money has strings attached. Any money, whether it's Social Security money, you know, or, or, or grant monies for the shelters. So then the, the government can say, you know, who's there? Why are they there? You know, where are they from? You know, what happened? And then they can they can um, ask for, you know, the you know name, rank, Social Security, whatever, for for whoever is, is there. And then I then have to provide them statistical data. So I don't want the government money for as a protection for 
you know, not for the abusers, but for the Muslim community in general and the women who are there trying to be, you know, uh, maintaining their anonymity, as well as I tell people that I'm philosophically opposed to taking money from the government to care for Muslim women. When um, Allah's messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, came to be a mercy to mankind, not for us to add to his burdens. And we as a Muslim community have a responsibility to care for these individuals, not to just, you know, push it off, you know, on, you know, the government. Because if anything, if I had money, I would establish, you know, a shelter for, you know, that would be for Muslims, for Christians, for Jews, you know, separate ones so that each person can maintain, you know, their right of, of religious freedom, which is exactly what our beloved Prophet Islam did. All right. And that's what I would do if I had the money. But because I cannot, then I would, you know, I would try to save those who I can help, which is, you know, the, the Muslims. But yes, if we, um, if, if we were doing it properly, then we would be caring for everyone as opposed to just kind of putting Muslim women, you know, throwing them in the pot with, with everyone else. And it goes back to what I was saying is that Muslim women are not necessarily a priority in the Muslim community. We're not. And, and I say this not against anyone, but just having done this work for so many years, people will give money for their masjids. They will give money for legal, you know, services. And then they will give money for schools, but for social services, uh, things they consider women's issues, we're very, it's, you know, it's a small number of individuals who feel that. And even when they do, it's during the month of Ramadan. <laughs> With, and they're forgetting, you know, that the 11 other months that, you know, <laughs> that people are in need, mashallah. The issue of women's care and health and um, domestic violence has definitely been put to the side, unfortunately. But do you feel like in all the years you've been doing it, has there been any like attitude change at all or not quite? Well, there was a time when, um, when I first started this, I wanted to eradicate domestic violence in the Muslim community. I was like, oh, I'm going to eradicate domestic violence. And then this, um, and I was very hopeful, you know, young, and then a Muslim sister came to the shelter and she was actually brought there by the police because the she was a victim of domestic violence. Her neighbor heard her being beat and called the police, you know, and, and the police brought her. And, and I actually call this my Kit Kat story for people who may have heard it. So we were in the house. I mean, the house is, is, is three levels. So I was on the, I was upstairs in the level because that was where women who didn't have children were. And then the, the first floor was where the women who had children were. So it's like two o'clock in the morning and she's calling me, you know, you know, um, um, I, I, you know, I need a Kit Kat. I need a Kit Kat. You know, and I'm like, she woke me up and then I came down. She, I says, what, what do you need? She said, I need a Kit Kat. And I'm like, what, you're diabetic? You know, you know, what's the problem? And then she says, for my son. This little boy was two years old and he was hitting her and kicking her and whatever, you know, that he wanted a Kit Kat two o'clock in the morning. And she was wanting me to get up, you know, I guess get dressed, go to the store and buy a Kit Kat. And I had tears in my eyes. And this is when I realized that I could not eradicate domestic violence because the abusers of tomorrow are already born. 
That's what this little boy, he was mimicking the behaviors of his father. And she was permitting it. And she had a little girl. And her little girl was going to be someone that would grow up and think that it was the norm. And what I have found, especially by women who come from, I would say, the stands, is that they would rather be dead than divorced. And that's the reason why they stay and they tell their daughters to stay. And I've seen this so much. And in that very same case, the woman's parents called me and, and they said they wanted to come and visit her because I guess her, um, um, you know, they found out that, you know, that she was in a shelter. And this was back before I stopped letting people come. But they, and I figured they were going to come and give her encouragement, you know, and, and, you know, maybe, you know, soothe her, you know, it was her parents. And they came and they bought her some of the, the cookies, you know, I guess some special cookies that, and basically they came to convince her to drop, drop the charges. Why? Because, again, this was a case in which um, she was married to her cousin, which was, of course, her father's brother's child. So her father had more loyalty to his brother than to his daughter. And so I said that the only way to be able to eradicate domestic violence would be if there was never any influx from anybody who felt, you know, the same way. You couldn't eradicate it. But just to give you, you know, just a, a little bit of, you know, an upbeat with this, is that then I started uh, with the MSAs. They would call me to come and, and speak, right? And they give some encouragement, the ones who are here and are educated in this country, because the... The, the men, you know, the, the young brothers, they see how it was for their mother. And so they wouldn't, um, want, wouldn't um, they grow up not wanting to be an abuser. And the girls grow up saying, I'm not going to tolerate being abused. So that is, that's hopeful. It won't eradicate domestic violence, but it will at least, you know, um, decrease the numbers. I'd like a step in the right direction. Yes, it would at least decrease, decrease the numbers. I wanted to touch on something that you had spoken about earlier about the home, not a shelter, but a home. Um, and I understand there's an acronym that you use about home. Um, did you want to, could you explain that? Yes, the acronym was that the, um, the services that were pro provided, all right, um, would be, because first of all, it was never intended to be a shelter. It was always intended to be a self-sufficiency program, all right? And because what, when, whenever, when someone is in need, it's that it doesn't matter. I mean, like I say, if you're quote unquote homeless, that if you, you can't become self-sufficient without having an address. So the point was to provide an address, you know, because you can't, you know, get a job, you can't go to school, you can't do anything. And so... The home stands for, the H was for housing, okay? The O was for occupational, you know, assistance, you know, means in terms of, you know, well, because the housing, of course, was a given because of the shelter. And then the O was occupation in terms of helping them to guide and direct them to finding, you know, you know work. And then the, the M was for medical, since, you know, 
I did have healthy solutions. I'm a you know, nurse practitioner. I could do that part and as well as I use volunteers. And then the E was for education so that they can, um, um, you know, work toward whether it's um, they want to get a, you know, a high school diploma like the GED or just going forth to find anything, you know, that would help them to be able to, you know, eventually say, you know, have an education, get a job, you know, make some money and then be able to leave. So that's where the H-O-M-E, you know, <laughs> comes from. And I also, also like people to know that the things that we provide, um, it, you know, was a lot does depend on volunteers you know, and I also want individuals that are professionals who are educated, not those who have some, you know, vendetta against men or Islam, because I've had those types of individuals who come or, or those who want to, um, um, I don't, I don't want to say mistreat the women, but superimpose their own values. So, for instance, you know, when I was in a meeting once with, um, with it was a bunch of professionals, you know, whether they was, you know, I don't know if it was social workers or, you know, you know, psychologists, like whatever, they, they were there. And they were talking about, um, you know, and I was the only nurse <laughs> in the room. And they were saying, well, what we have to do is empower the women to be able to stand up to these men, you know what, and, and you know, and, and you know, you know, um, actualize their rights. And it was just going on and on and on. But we have to, when we have to do this, we have to, you know, you know, tell the women that, you know, they don't have to take this. And, and I'm listening to people who maybe spend a few, you know, minutes, maybe an hour with the women talking, you know, to them, you know, in their sessions. And then I finally, you know, after hearing all of this, I said, excuse me. <laughs> I said, excuse me, I said, um, that's not what the women want to do, you know, because remember, because what they're doing is that they're saying they're superimposing what they feel the women should do. So all they've done is remove one form of oppression for another type. And I says, no, I says, the women, I says, the man, they're not angry with the man. I says, they love him. They just want him to stop beating them. And so to try to push the women into this anger pattern is, is wrong, right? And, it, you know, and it's better, you know, to have a forgiveness mode. If you're away from it, you don't have to hold that anger because as they say, you know, if, you, if you're angry with someone, then, you know, they hold that power, you know, over you. And, and who wants to carry anger around in your heart like that? So that's the reason why I don't, you know, I don't... Um, I don't want those types of people coming in and talking with the women, even individuals who have come as lawyers. They, you know, would, you know, they would say, you know, well, what we want, we want to make him pay. You know, we want to take him to court. You know, he needs to do time. He was an awful person, you know, and I was like, oh my, you know, all they wanted you to do was to help them, you know, be able to get a divorce. And now you want to, you know, like I said, you know, annihilate the man. And I so those volunteers, no, I want people who are there who want to be, um, you know, um, nurturing and caring, but at but without you know babying, all right, the women because we want them to be self sufficient, okay, and that is a requirement for being in the home, um, but not to come in anger. On, on that point, you were mentioning. Um... Is that is it that the most, it's, for example, it's emotional connection that the woman has with 
or abuser in these situations and they're in your home. Is that the most difficult um, thing, thing to try to guide them to, to sort of to move on, to get on their feet or try to, you know, move forward with uh, a plan in their life? Or, or do you find that that's a difficult thing to, for them to navigate, for them to move on and move in a different direction? Yes, but part of the reason, and this has to do more with individuals who came from cultures where that's all they were taught. So just like if I said to you, you know, early on that my mother told me from as a child, you know, go to school to be a nurse. I don't ever remember her telling me, any, I mean, you know, knowing anything else. So it's like whether you kind of say I was brainwashed, I don't know. It was a good decision. But, I mean, it was there. So these girls have had the exact same type, especially those, from, like I said, from other countries, have had the same type of, you know, subliminal suggestions all their life. So, um that's the attachment is probably less about the man and more about the culture is that you cannot, you know, that as a, as a woman, you know, you, you have to do whatever the man says and they use, you know, the religion. And this, then this is across all of the faith traditions it has nothing to do with Islam that if a, they tell the women that, okay, this is your way to get to heaven. This is where you get to paradise. And I tell them, I says, you know, you might want to pick a different path. <laughs> you know, it's not just one path. You can, you know, choose others. But that's what they've been told. And that a good wife is obedient. You know, all of these, all of the faith traditions say it. So if you're a person who's trying to be able to, get, you know, gain paradise, then why would you, you know, and this is just your test, you're not going to leave from that. So that what you're needing is for them to be able to understand well, what they're needing is for, um, for to be able to understand that, no, this is not what Allah and his messenger has stated is incorrect. That, you know, what they're thinking is incorrect. One of the things that, um, that you were mentioning earlier was, well, you know, I think for the Muslim community, uh, Specifically, but also just for general, uh, general broader society, there's a lot of assumptions made about um, victims of domestic violence, which uh, acts as a barrier for people to actually try to support or address the problem, uh, Muslim community included. And and one thing I you know I, I wanted to ask you, you have you have women from from a lot of different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes that come through. Uh, what are some of these? Um, assumptions that we make about victims of domestic violence and also in a broader uh, broader term, uh, victims of, of homelessness that we make. Because I, I, one of my biggest memories from you uh, from years ago was uh, was at the United for a Change conference. I was there and uh, you addressed the, 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 uh, the, the convention and you came in like um, with, a, with like a, one of those I think wool, wool caps on and, and you quite powerfully demonstrated how we make these assumptions about people. Could you talk a little bit about that and like the, the how we what first number one how what are the assumptions we make and number two how what, how are ways that we uh, in the community can move past these assumptions uh, and really realize the the, the you know the, the issues at hand? Okay, the the um, the main assumption is the one that I had mentioned already, which is that it could never happen to any you know to to yourself and and yet if we think about you know. Um, I'm sure the people of Houston, Texas, you know, in Texas when all those floods or in Puerto Rico or the people in California with the fires, you know, these were not individuals who were on a path to, to homelessness. And so we need to remove that assumption that people who are homeless are just vagrants on the street. 
And because it's, it's in that mindset that you don't then don't want to help someone because you figure you're just, you know, giving money to someone who's not even, um, um, you know, trying to help themselves. The, uh, the other thing is that, and, 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 and that's my pet peeve, is when people want to give canned food. They want to give, they said, you know, for, they do canned food drives. I says, who thought of that? I said, just, yeah, let's, let's just go with a logical, tra- you know, like train of thought. If a person is homeless, that means they have no home and they're on the street, all right, what are they going to do with canned foods? Canned foods are heavy. Right. And if you're walking around with all of your possessions on your back or even in those little shopping carts, because like I said, you know, canned foods are actually, you know, they're very heavy. Not to mention you need a can opener and maybe, you know, if you were going to heat it up, you needed, you know, a stove, you know, this type of a thing. So um, and if a person is also homeless, they also probably have, you know, um, the, you know, poor, you know, a nutritional status. Right. And canned foods have no nutritional value. All right. People eat canned foods because they're because they're hungry, not because they, you know, they're trying to be able to, you know, have a, you know, a balanced diet. Um, and I the only, and if I think about if a person is saying that they want to give something that's non-perishable, maybe that was what was in their mind. But if you what I tell people, if you're going to give something that's non-perishable, then get something that a homeless person could actually use. Um, and they said, or oh, even if they're going to donate to the shelter, I says, you know what? Donate toilet paper. He says, toilet paper. I says, yes. I says, first of all, you know, it, you know, it's, you know, it's, you have to dispose of it when, once, you know, use once and get rid of it. I said, it's, you know, it's easy to carry as well as is, you know, it's non-perishable. But nobody ever thinks about those types of things that if you, if I, if I was going to give somebody homeless something on the street, that's what I would give them because remember they're in unsavory, you know, maybe environments where, you know, I even have this like, you know, paranoia that I don't want to go into a bathroom and they don't have toilet paper in there. And even if you are saying that you, um, that you were going to give it to one of those uh, soup kitchen, because when people come and they, when they'll say to me, they'll say, asthma, I want to come to the house. I want to come to the house and I want to, you know, feed the women. Right. I'm insulted. Why? Because I say, just think about your statement. You're going to come and feed the women. I said, they feed themselves. You see, just the use of the word, right? And they said, well, I want to come and I want to cook. I said, you know, I want to cook for the women. I said, well, no. I said, we have a kitchen. I said, you know, it's a regular home and they cook as well. And so, and even, and again, coming back to that, even if you were, what, were wanting to do these things, I says, what you're thinking about is a soup kitchen, not a shelter. Shelters don't let you come in and do that. Those are soup kitchens where you can come in, you know, and cook up food and then, you know, you know, serve it to individuals. So, you know, the, these are uh, statements that people will make. And then they'll say, well, Asma, I want to come and I want to visit the house, right? And something that the women, and a lot of these things I learned, by having conversations with the women and they share how they it makes them feel. And they say, Asma, when you let people come and visit, it makes us feel like animals in a zoo. And the Muslim community doesn't get it because what they feel instead that I'm hiding something as opposed to trying to protect the dignity and anonymity of the individuals there. And then if this one person 
you know, con you know, many people, they say, well, I have a, I have children and I want to bring them to the shelter. And I said, you know, I want to visit the shelter. And I says, why? They said, well, I want them to be able to, you know, you know, to um, show them, you know, how they should be grateful to, you know, what Allah has provided with them. I want to treat, you know, um, you know, show them how, you know, teach them to be, you know, you know, teach them humility. And I says, oh, okay, so you want to teach your children humility by humiliating others. You see misconceptions what, what we're, you know what we're what we're thinking and in and even in his, in his, in islam where um none none of these are the concepts that's why i say i don't understand and then when people want to um and again when you ask me about the the the, the um the, the misconceptions where people want to give toys to the children for eid they want to give they said and i said um no i says well why um what would be better is to build a playground. I said, because if you build a playground, it could be there, you know, and the playground costs thousands of dollars. I said, you know, donate the money for the playground. And I said this for like five years, donate the money for a playground because then, you know, it's something that can last beyond Eid. You know, the children can, you know, play there and it will be a benefit for all the children that come. So then the person says, well, no, I want to be able to, you know, like go to the store and buy them a gift and wrap it and then bring it to, you know, bring it to them and then, you know, and, and, and see them, you know, and unwrap it, you know, and, and, and then see the smile on their faces. I said, then that gift was for you. It wasn't for the child, you know, and I, and I tell them, I said, if you really wanted to do that, then I says, give a gift card, you know, that I would give to the mother who could go to the store and purchase a gift that her child would want and then she would get that you know that that admiration you know in the eyes of her child that the mother knows that um that the child knows that my mom you know i got this gift because in islam what the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing but you're wanting something that is, is it doesn't belong to you that you want to get that, you know, that gratitude or that sense of appreciation that you've done this, you know, for that child. But no, it belong. It should be. It should be given to to the mother. And even those gifts that they give, they're that generic. You know, you know, you know, boy. You know, age five. You know, a girl. You know, age seven. They're just generic gifts. They're not gifts that um, the child would even want. And and I let people know that. Um, Children are not burdened with the stigma of homelessness. All right. They, they, you know, they don't, all they know is that they're in a different place, you know, with their mother and other people are around. They're not like, Oh, I'm homeless and I'm here. No, they don't have that stigma at all. In fact, I wrote a paper on, on actually on that one. And so that gift that you put, you know, so much um, you know, uh, I don't want to say stock or, you know, so much importance on, say what, they're going to play with that gift for five minutes like any other child and then go <laughs> and go do something else or break it up. I've seen people buy gifts and they didn't last, you know, like a, a couple of minutes because, you know, they, they don't have some, you know, great appreciation for it. Whereas if it was something that, um, that their mother had given, you know, they would have, they would have liked it more. And, um, so I, I, I've been wanting the Muslim community to um to recognize that and on that particular occasion what i what i had on on that day those were actually clothing items that people had donated and i wanted the muslim community to see 
this is what you give to end of, to you know those who are homeless. I thought we were supposed to give our best. So you gave some wool cap that you know sweater that had holes in it you know gloves that you know was all torn up you know the clothing that i had they wouldn't be seen with it you would be surprised at the things that people give and it goes back to my original statements talking about the discards i won't even show those things to the muslim women in the house because i don't want them to think or know that this is the opinion that the Muslim community has of them, that you give the stuff that you don't want anymore. You'll give me, like I said, things that are broken, you know, things that you should not even have gone past a trash can, should have thrown them away. Or you give, why well, you give some television, someone gave up this big screen, I mean, not a big, this, this one of those huge floor model televisions that was like tall as I was, and they gave, they says, they told me it would work. Well, yeah, it would if you had cable, but, and you know, and they would bring it, or people, you know, when they want to, you know, donate cards, they say, well, I have a car, and I get it, and it won't even pass inspection. We, we treat those who are homeless so wrong, and I don't see Islam in any of that when people, you know, behave in this manner. And even when people were saying that they wanted to, even those who talk about when they wanted to come and, and visit, I says, you know, you have the right to choose in your, in your life who you want to be your friend. Why do you want to deny the Muslim women that same thing? I says, don't you know that even if they didn't feel the part about, you know, the animals in the zoo, they also know that you're only there because they're in a shelter. Right. So what you're what they see and, you know, and hear in your voice is pity. Nobody wants to be pitied. No one wants to be pitied. And so, you know, all you are, you're serving as a reminder. You say, well, no, I always want to sit and I want to talk with them and just hang out with them as my Muslim sisters. I says, I says, no, that's not what they're going to think. And that's what you're saying, but that's because you're in a moment, you're feeling this moment of, you know, this sedicaness, you know, you want to be able to come and, you know, I want to, you know, hang out with them. And then you're going to go away back to your nice little cushiony life with all these wonderful things, you know, and, um, and forget all about them. And the, uh, there's so many of these types of examples. And the other one is that most of the time when people will call and say that they want to, um, says, well, I want to help. I want to help the Muslim women, all right? And I says, okay. He says, I want to bring her, you know, into, you know, my house, you know, and I'll treat her as my Muslim sister, and um, I'll give her her own room. So basically, so I'm gonna, um, I want her, they want you to work for them. And then this is gonna go back to my grandmother, where you want them to come in and, you know, cook and clean and take care of your, ch your children, they said, and um, in exchange for room and board, which means that she won't get any money in her hand. That she's, you know, and I says, well, no. I said, I do that for free. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she doesn't need to come to your house, you know, and, and you're going to work. And, and then you ha they have them working, you know, 24 hours out of the day. And she never has time off. And the older Muslims from the other countries who come to the shelter is because they had a position like that with someone. And it might have been for 10 or 15 years. But then when they don't need you anymore, they say, well, thank you. It's been real. You know what? Um, Salaam alaikum. And now you're homeless on the street. You still can't speak English. You still don't have any education. You have no money saved. You have no family. You have nowhere to go.
because you've just used her, took all of the best years of her life, made her think that, you know what, that I don't know that she could be there for an indefinite period. I don't know, but we are very unkind to those who are homeless. And if we're going to care for people in accordance with Quran and Sunnah, we really need to sit down and take time to think about what is it that we're doing. And I, and I say that, you know, homelessness is a test on both sides. It's a test for those who, you know, Allah has, you know, you know, for whom that this test has been placed on them is how they're going to react and respond. You know, are they going to, you know, hold firm to the rope of Allah, you know, and, and hang in there and try to be able to be okay. And for those who, you know, I turn to and I ask for help. So your test is how are you going to react and respond to the needs of those who are outlined in the Quran, you know, that you're supposed to help. And I say to people, you know, when I'm asking for donations, I, you know, and, and, and you're wanting to be, I don't want to say, you know, um, miserly or skeptical about if you want to help. I says, well, you know, um, the reason why you should help is because I said, we're talking about the poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans. I says, hmm, these are people that are mentioned in Quran. I says, were you mentioned, <laughs> you know, in, in this manner, you know, were you mentioned? And, in, and where you are mentioned is saying that you're supposed to, you know, you have a responsibility to these individuals. And I have all of those categories. You know, have all of those categories, and everyone in the house is zakat eligible. You made a lot of very important points um, in what you're saying, especially at, uh, in how we let our own selfishness and uh, get in the way of serving. Uh, even the fact, like when you're talking about, like you know, feeding. I, I've, I've, as you said earlier, like, you know, you're not here to feed; you're here to to be in service. And one of the the prerequisites of of serving people is that you have to have a degree of humility in how you yeah. are helping the people and and you know I know for for me it was really hitting hard in what you were saying that you know that a lot of these things we do um, that we think we're doing as sadaqa actually is just only to elevate our own own selves by doing yeah. that and then and, and also what you mentioned about you know what uh, what our tradition says I and mean, we know the Prophet وسلم, was sought out to be with the poor and that's something that i think we've lost especially in our very privileged lives here living in 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 the united states that we've lost this this not only love for the poor but love to be with them and to sit with them even and to be in their company um and to look at them as uh, not as someone something to be pity on but just actually just to be with them and to get barakah actually from blessing Mm -hmm. from them because the prophet wanted to be with the poor and even yeah. said that the poor will be in, in paradise before the before the uh, before the wealthy so uh, I mean these are really what you're saying is, is a big challenge to a lot of us in, in how we we see first of all how we make assumptions about those who are victims of domestic violence or those who are homeless but also uh, it makes us take a hard look of who we are ourselves and how we're letting our you know our own egos dictate what we're doing something that I um I think about when I said that people will spend money on messages and I I think about these 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 messages these multi-million dollar messages and they say that they're I would be so nervous to have spent that kind of money and you know while you're building a house for you say you're building a house for Allah but you'll leave so many of his servants homeless 
And I and this came to, you know, a reality when, you know, a masjid contacted me. A multi-million dollar masjid contacted me and said that there was a Muslim sister who was homeless in the masjid and they wanted me to take her. They called me like at, it was midnight. They said they want me to take her. And that she had actually, she was a victim of domestic violence. She'd come from another country, but she had was, had a vehicle and a vehicle had just made it from, was from Florida. And she, you know, she was trying to find um, a masjid that she can go to. And I guess that masjid, you know, that she, the GPS, you know, for whatever reason, put that one up. And she was there. And so their security person <laughs> called me and said that we want to take her. I says, well, you know, it's midnight. And, and you know, she couldn't really, I couldn't even tell her how to get to me. And we don't know if her vehicle would even make it. And he says, well, she can't spend the night here. And I was like, why not? He says, well, because it's a masjid and she can't spend the night here. And then I, and so then um, when I talked with her, she said, okay, well, even if she couldn't stay inside, could she just stay, you know, park, you know, keep her car parked on, you know, like on the grounds in the parking lot where, and that she could just go inside and use the restroom to be able to get up in the morning for Fajr, you know, and make wudu so then she could then go in and pray. And they told her no, she couldn't even do that. And they said that if she didn't move her vehicle, they were going to call the police on her. This is a multi-million dollar masjid. And the sad part is that this masjid actually has apartments that was connected with this, with, you know, that, that's built, you know, on, you know, on their grounds. They actually have apartments that they could have put this sister in for a night. I said, I will take her the next day. I says, but I can't get, I can't, you know, I didn't have any transportation and, and I couldn't get her from where she was to where I was. And, you know, and they wasn't even willing to give money to pay for her to even take a cab or Uber or, or anything. And I don't know what happened to that sister because they said if she didn't leave, they were going to call the police on her. And this is the type of thing that, that when I'm thinking about people putting so much money in messages and you're trying to make, you know, you're protecting this, this building and you would leave, you know, a servant, a maid servant of Allah homeless on the street. Yeah, Allah, we, we absolutely are going to have to answer for this. Absolutely. There's a lack of sympathy and empathy that obviously is, is prevalent. Um, and I wanted to um, just move on to the next generation. We've already identified a lot of issues and, and uh, um, complexes that our current generation has dealing with problems of homelessness and domestic violence. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on how uh, we can raise uh, a generation of uh, the next generation who will be empathetic, who will be people of service, who will be people who wish to gain the blessings of being with the poor. Uh, and I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that as well as, as I think an, a, a, something you've already done yourself in a different form, which is, um, which is the chili bowl. Um, and I, you talk about that because I think the story behind that, I think actually yeah. really feeds into this, um, pun, no pun intended, but feeds into the, this, uh, yeah. this topic. Well, the chili bowl Sunday, <laughs> as you see, my, my family is woven, you know, intricately woven into everything. So, and chili bowl Sunday is on Super Bowl. It's always Super Bowl Sunday. So basically, so basically what, I, what, what happened was that years ago, see everything happened years ago. That's what happened when you become a senior citizen, right? Everything happened years ago, back in the day. Um, 
my my sister had my sons. They were going to watch, you know, you know, they were preparing for uh, going to watch like the the um, the Super Bowl game. And it was like this major thing, you know, big screen TV, you know, paid for the, you know, for the event, you know, but I got, you know, sending out the food and whatnot. And I thought I was saying to myself, wow. This is a colossal waste of time. I cannot believe that people put this much energy into, you know, watching a football game. And I said, well, if you're going to do that, you should at least do some kind act beforehand. At least do that. You know, don't make the day be a total waste. So I told my children, I said, what we need to do is we're going to go out and we're going to, you know, you know, we're going to serve food to, you know, those homeless on the street. And, um, you know, children, when they're younger, they're very compliant, right? And um, so I told them, I said, well, what are we going to make? We're going to make chili. And I, and I explained, I said, we make chili because, I said, you can't really ruin chili. I, need, I had to think of a meal that children could make, a complete meal that children could make, which is why I didn't say chili, you know, over rice, all right? He said chili is easy to make. Can't really mess it up um, because even burnt chili tastes good. The worst thing you could do to chili, you mess it up, would be, you know, if you put too much salt in it, and then you can always, you know, like add more ingredients to get rid of that part. So they had then the, um, the part of this is that they had to go to the store, well, they had to have a recipe, and had to go to the store, purchase the ingredients, bring it back, you know, cook it, and then, you know, we went to, you know, and in every city and state has a, some type of homeless village area where the homeless, you know, would, would actually congregate. And we would go there, we would set up a table, and then they would, you know, serve, you know, hot bowls of chili to those that are homeless on the street. And part of that also, which goes back to what you were saying about being in the company of those who were poor, were um, that you also had to eat the chili as well. See, when you're going and you're setting up and you're giving the bowls and you're like, okay, here, it's like you're putting yourself on a level, you know, higher than. So, no, the requirement is that you have to eat alongside those who are there, you know, you know serving them first. And, you know, um, the food is left, you know, of course, we're not going to take food from them. But if it was um, food left, then we would we would we would eat as well. And this started, I don't even know how many years ago now. <laughs> maybe it was, it seems like now, it seems maybe 20 years. I have to think about how old my children are. <laughs> I have to think about how old my children are. And and it has continued all all these years. The, and uh, so that's how we got the name, of course, Chili Bowl Sunday, because it happens every year on Super Bowl Sunday. Now, my children, have they did it more days than just that time. We, you know, we continue to do it, but that's the, the signature. And now that's become the annual, you know, one of my annual signature events. Um, and, it, and I believe that I don't know about other people's children, but I see in my children that, um, uh, caring for the, the 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 poor, the needy, the lesser, you know, seeing about you know the struggle. Nowhere in all of the changes that we've gone through did my children ever say, "Well, we don't want to do this," or you know, uh, well, "Mama, you know, why are you still caring for these people?" Or you know, it's almost as if it was um, a part of who we are. But then. That also came from, you know, um, my mother and my father. My father is JTN. She's one of the original Muffle Point Marines who actually, you know, gave, you know, in service to his country, 
you know, he, he struggled, you know, at Camp Lejeune where they were mistreated as African-Americans and they broke the, you know, marine color barrier, you know, and got the congressional, you know, you know, you know, you know, gold medal and these types of things. So I come from a line of, you know, family traditions where people um, cared for others. So I absolutely have to agree with you that if, if, it's, if it's traditions that you pass on, all right, that it will, you know, um, um, you know, come forth. The problem is that as the parents, they have to instill this in the child and not let them grow up with this privileged attitude. So when the youth groups contact me and they'll say that they want to do something, whether it's the, you know, the Girl Scouts or like I said, the, what in any youth group in a school. And one of the things that they usually ask is that they want to do canned food drives. And then I have to tell them, you know, my, my story about the canned food because I want to, you know, to educate them. And something that I did uh, even recently was because you have to change their attitude. They have to not look at individuals who are homeless as people that you look down on. But that has to come from within their home, you know, their, their, their parents' you know, attitude. I'm not saying that a person couldn't have... Um, belongings. You know, I'm not saying that a person couldn't live, you know, you know, I don't want to say necessarily even wealthy or, you know, middle class, whatever, but you should share and you should give and you shouldn't feel like that if you lose it, all right, that it, um, that either was, that it, that it was a horrible thing because we've, we've, uh, my family and I, we've gone from, you know, you know, having a little bit, then having a lot, then having, you know, you know, then all they could want, then, you know, letting that go, then having, you know, then building it up again, and then letting it go. And like, even now, you know, with my living in the uh, shelter, and people might will say, well, you know, well, you got, you know, three sons, why don't you go live with them? And I said, yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, I could, but that won't help the women. But what I find is that my presence in the shelter unfortunately, it has to be my presence there, is what um, make people feel that I'm sincere. And I guess if they felt that if I was someplace, you know, under the lap of luxury of my children, that I would be less sincere. Don't know why, but um, if that's the only way to be able to um, continue to save the, the women and then get, you know, donations for the house, then that's what I then that's what I would do. But yeah, absolutely. My I have like I said, sons. They would absolutely take care of me. And then the um and, and so as I I'm not rejecting it. I'm just saying, you know what, no, let's continue to help, you know, those in need who others are not taking. And I also did a talk with the youth about um I did a talk with the youth about um honorable homeless Muslims. This is my this is a, a lecture that I give and and I give them an example because I want to take from their mind that that people who are homeless are just like I said you know vagrants. So I tell them the story of um, of of you know Haja. And Ishmael says, "Well, tell me the story." I says, "Well, I said you know the story about Prophet Ibrahim." And I said, "Yes." I says, "Okay, so you know when Prophet Ibrahim, you know when he he left, you know he left his one place, and he had you know Hajar and Ishmael." I says, "And you know where did they leave him?" You know, I said, and they said, "Well, they left him, you know, out in the desert." Then it says, "All along," I said, "With no provisions, right?" He said, "With no provisions." I said, "So what did that make her?" 
And they said, homeless. See, this is a lesson for the children. Say they made her homeless. I said, and yet, I said, isn't she an honorable person? I says, you know, you know, you know, the, the both of them. I said, and, and, and don't we have, you know, traditions now that was a result, you know, of, you know, of, of what she established, you know, in that state of homelessness. You see, so they have something that's in Islam that's also, um, you know, tangible that they can, you know, look back on and be able to aspire to that. No, it's not a bad thing. I even used the story of our beloved Prophet Islam that's in the cave. I said, well, he, when he was in the cave, because I first have him talk, talk about what is the definition of homelessness, right? So I said, well, when he was in the cave, I said, well, what was he? And they say homeless, you see? I said, so now aren't these honorable people? And that's what I want. That if, if, you, if, they, if the youth understand that it's nothing, you know, um, you know, derogatory, that it's a test from Allah, then they will react and respond to the needs of those who are homeless in the same way. And not, and, 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 cause you know, it's hard to treat somebody horrible if you, you know, when you can look up to them. And that's why, and so I don't, I, I won't, um, when they say they want to do the canned food drives, I was like, no. And then I tell them my canned food story. And then I also say to them, I say, you know, what would be a better thing? I said, because the most important thing is for them to have a place to live, not to have, you know, you know, a whole bunch of canned foods. I says, why don't you then, I says, let's think of some other things as a way that we can provide for them, have a home. So I says, why don't you have a bake sale? I said, have a bake sale. You know what? And then maybe, you know, sell these, these, uh, these items after Juma. So then you take the money. I says, and then you use it to maybe, you know, to, um, you know, uh, pay a bill for a month in the house. I said, because isn't that what's most important to you? Because I asked them, you know, what is most important? And children are very honest, so they give very good answers. As opposed to just saying, you know, um, you know, here, you know, go, go get some cans out of the, the, the cabinet and you're going to take the stuff that you didn't want anymore anyway. Maybe those, you know, those artichokes or those that cranberry sauce or something that you didn't have any use for or your toys that you would, you know, that you don't play with anymore. See, that's what we're doing. We're teaching the children to give the things away that we don't want. And I won't, I won't allow, I won't, you know, I won't allow that. The only problem, the biggest problem is the adults. Because what they're saying, they want they want the children to be more interactive. They keep wanting it, you know, to you want them to feel the 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 sadness of of um, of the people being homeless, but it's not this pity. And no, and they don't want they don't want that. So whereas the chili bowl Sunday, that is a time when they could come and they can actually get you know you know you know in. Um, around those who are actually homeless on the street, whereas those that are in the shelter, what you're doing is preventing, you know, um, the return to homelessness. You know, you know, rescuing them and pretending to, re you know, and preventing that. But the children are the key. But the problem is the parents. If the parents don't let them, don't educate them, because I mean, I did it with my children. I know that it works. I know that it works, and I see with, okay, yes, so now I have grandchildren, and they are there at Chili Bowl Sunday, you know, and they also know, so it can be, a, it becomes a family tradition, and I'm not the only parent 
you know, who's this way. There are others, but it's just hard to be able to get the Muslim community to let go of something that doesn't belong to them in the first place, which is zakat and sadaqah. It does not belong to you. And that was something that Imam Zay Shakur said, that that money belongs to those in need. It doesn't belong to you. Um, so along with, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, not doing the canned food, but doing a bake sale um, and a few other, you know, types of things like paying the bill for the shelter for our home, sorry, for example. Um, what other, you know, tangible ways can we help out? You know, what kind of volunteers do you do you need um, to help or, you know, to serve the women what, or anything really? Well, the most of the times when people ask me that question, um, it's because they have something in their minds that they want to do. So I have to then, you know, redirect it because individuals, and it goes back to the pity thing. They want to be in the company of the women. And I tell them, the women, I said, no, they don't want to be in your company. I said, they want to have a place to live. So if I say to someone, I said, you know what you could do? You could help me with social media. If I had individuals that would, you know, send out emails, you know, forward the emails, and I tell them this, or, um, you know, post stuff on Facebook, or, you know, that can be able to advocate, people will react and respond to others who are advocating on behalf of Muslim and Anissa than myself. But when I tell somebody I need them to be able to do, you know, social media outreach, their hearts are not as inclined as if they were sitting in the face of the sisters, you know, so the things that, that I ask, or even if they wanted to come and, you know, set up tables with me. So if I want to be at the, if I was going to be at the, the ICNA, you know, event and I need, don't, you know, volunteers to sit at the table, because I also find that people, especially at, you know, ICNA, <laughs> that people will react and respond to people who don't look like me, <laughs> and give donations than they would, you know, sing, you know, Asma Hanif. And and just as a point of reference, um, and, and as Muslims, we really have to do better. They feel as if the people in the shelter look like me, and, and they want to help their countrymen, when in actuality, they look like them. Because those who look like me are not the ones that I give priority because they're from this country, they got status, they have family, they have resources, you see, and I'm gonna go, if I have a choice, I'm gonna go with the people who have the least amount, you know, of resources. And that wouldn't be those who look like me. So I, um, it's not, you know, it's just being, you know, trying to, you know, they said level the playing field, all right? But um, I'm not going to then bring um, someone there to be able to look into the faces of the women to be able to know that you need to take my word for it or you know um, you know there's nothing else that, that I can say so those are the types of things I need and then you know any type of the other professional services would be finding individuals who could volunteer work in the health center because see what we've done now is we're rebuilding um, we're rebuilding the health center and um, getting volunteers who are, you know, health professionals, you know, you know, doctors, nurses, you know, anyone coming to be able to say, you know what, I want to work some of the days in there. That would make me be reliable again and I wouldn't have to beg so much. Because remember, for all of those years, it was my health services that, um, that supported, you know, the shelter. 
And it was much easier to do than begging. Unfortunately, we're going to have to bring this to a close, um, especially because I think the people drilling outside are about to like drill through the wall right next to us. So for those of our listeners or our listeners maybe hearing some noises, it's just where we're uh, we're on the road here and there's some uh, construction going on, uh, unexpected construction. But uh, so I don't know how much time we have before they come through this wall here. But um, but uh, alhamdulillah, um, uh, Sister Asma, just I wanted to. If you could, uh, as a point of conclusion, you know the work that you're doing is important, but it's also very, um, it's also very draining and exhausting. And uh, there's a lot of uh, other people who are doing social work, doing activism in the community. What would you recommend to the to them to how to stay how to stay spiritual grounded? You know, um, that question. The whole reason why that question is a difficult one, because now that I see how much it drains me, I said that um, if I knew then what I know now, I would not have taken it on. If I had known that it was going to be this difficult, the draining is, is, is not necessarily the caring for the women, it's the reaction and responses of the Muslim community and the, um, my, not being there for family members. And that began with, like, with my children. They were, you know, I was, I felt as if I wasn't um, enough a part of the some important moments in their life because I was caring for other people's children, in a sense. And, uh, of course, my greatest sadness is that when my mother was ill and I wasn't there for her and my mother died in a nursing home, and yet she was the womb that bore me and the one who had rights over me. And I was, I couldn't get the Muslim community's help to um, care for the women whom was the Muslim community's responsibility so I could care for my mother. These are things that I cannot retrieve. I mean, it's mashallah, you know, it's the past, but it's the, the sadness that I, that I carry. And, and at this point, the only thing I can do is to continue doing the work and, you know, that, that, you know, may Allah, you know, forgive me for having ignored those who had rights over me. And maybe, you know, this work will help to balance my scale by continuing it. So I would, my advice would be for someone to never do that. You know, don't neglect your family and your family's responsibilities to care for others. Um, you Figure out a way that you can, whether you're donating to help, you know, someone else do it or giving a portion of your time, but not to be neglectful of those who have rights over you because it will, like I said, it burdens your heart. And I carry that burden with me on a regular basis. The other one is to um, also seek out those avenues which provide you spiritual revitalization. So to keep going, you know, you can't just keep going on and on and on and on and on. It's like, you know, gasoline in a car. You know, you have to refuel. And so, you know, my refueling is, you know, attending events like Pearls of the Quran because, see, I'm I'm there and for, you know, a brief weekend in that retreat, I'm being spiritually selfish. And if I don't do that, then I would be spiritually 
I know I would be committing, as I said, spiritually spiritual suicide. I couldn't I couldn't do this. And and I that's why I'm so grateful and appreciative to be able to attend those moments because you may not even realize how drained you are until you just lose it one day in terms of, you know, whether you're, you know, being emotionally, you know, stable or, or emotionally fit. And um, I know that when I, when I come back from, you know, you know, let's say again, you know, from pearls that I, I'm better able to deal with whether they're, the, the attitudes or the lack of appreciation or the ungratefulness or all of those things that just take a toll on any human being in any, you know, walk of life, that it, it helps. So you absolutely have to, you know, do that self-care. You absolutely have to do it because you won't be able to function. You don't want to go, you know, from, you know, from either extreme. You have to be able to find a middle path. And, and I find that, um, that does it. That does it for me. That, along with hugs from my children and my grandchildren, family is is is, is very important. It's very important. I don't find a lot of. Um, I don't from the general Muslim community. I don't really feel uh, a lot of. Um, I'm trying to. I don't want to say encouragement, but because I feel as if they use me as a solution to a problem that they don't want to deal with, as opposed to, well, you know what, let me, let, let, let's uplift, you know, Sister Asma so she can keep on doing this to be able to help those in need. Not, so the general community, no, it's more specific individuals or entities that do that for me. And so you have to be able to know, you know, who those are. And alhamdulillah that, you know, and and I and I say this again, even if pearls is just once a year, you know, then right after that, you know, comes Ramadan, you know, and then I can make it, you know, to the next. And then after that is, you know, the next Eid, so I can make it, you know, you know, it's enough going on that I could do that. But um, you really do have to take care of of yourself because you, there's no way to take care of others because if you do, then you begin to resent those who are actually draining you, and then you lose your blessing. You lose your blessing. And I, one thing I also like to share is that someone asked me, someone asked me, they said, uh, asthma, and they see all the, the work that I'm doing, they say, um, they say, well, you know, well, what do you gain? What do you gain? And I thought for a minute, and then I said, nothing in this life. We, if we look at it from, the way our beloved Prophet Islam looked at things then, and maybe it's just from, you know, like I said, you know, all the years of being a senior citizen or whatever, I don't know, looking at the fact that I have more years behind me than I have forward. I, I don't, um, you know, I look at it from that perspective. And then, and I also share, and I usually like to end with, just with this statement when someone asks me, they say, um, well, you know, why do you do it? And I say it's because that on the day of judgment, when Allah would come to me and he would say, Asma, one of my servants came to you and asked you for help and you turned her away. Who would want to give all of this to their life? And then you have to 
have a response to your Lord for a question like that. I would rather go through all of this than to sacrifice the possibility of not going to hell. I'm not even going to say that I would make paradise to just because I don't put myself in the category with any of those, the Sahabi and, you know, you know, the prophets I don't put. But if I could just not go to hell, if I could just be maybe close enough just to smell the fragrance of paradise, then I will do the work. I will continue to do the work and have no expectations because when someone says, well, you know, Allah will reward you, that's like a, a no-brainer. Because if anybody's doing anything that's good, you know that Allah has your back. And I don't need accolades from human beings. I want paradise. I want paradise. Uh, you are an inspiration to to us all. And, uh, you know, I think of the... Uh, what the Prophet said of, uh, of the one if you the one who loves the poor and brings them close to them that uh, Allah will bring them near to him uh, on the day of judgment and, and uh, we pray that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings us uh, brings you and all of us uh, nearer to him we we're praying for you and we also want to encourage our the community and our listeners to um, to support your work where can they learn more about the shelter and and also support yeah, well, we have a website, and it's um, www.mnisaashelter.org. Or if they didn't get all of that, they can just look up Muslimat Onisa Shelter. We'll yeah. put this also in like yes, in our, in our notes for the show, but yes. definitely want uh, you know all, everyone to please check out um, that and to, to please support as as if it was not clear enough from what we've been talking about and and uh, that it's definitely in need of your support, uh, this effort. Um, I want to thank you again, Mr. Um, Asma, for, for, for taking time out of your day. I know you're very busy to, 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 um, to provide us this, uh, this time to be able to talk to you. Thank you, Sara, for coming in on the show as well. Um, I want to thank Ayub, who's in the background over there, for, for also facilitating this. This is all one of Asma's sons who she was speaking about before. Um, and I want to thank all of you as a listeners for listening to the show and, and spending your time with us for this very important conversation. For more articles and podcast episodes, you can visit our website, imanwire.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please uh, leave uh, your feedback with a five-star review. All of that really helps in getting this out to a greater audience. You can always reach us at um, imanwire at elmedinainstitute.org. We hope to see you again in the next uh, program. Until then, assalamu alaikum. Peace be unto you. Oh, I'm